This is The Global Gambit. In The Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy and current affairs. Each episode, your host, Piotr Kurzin, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists and policymakers. Seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us and question and critically analyse these matters. This is The Global Gambit. Greetings, Internet, and, uh, and welcome back. So this time around, we're going to be discussing France. And before I've even continued saying that with this voice and accent, some of you are going to be wondering where he's going with this. Don't worry, I'm not going to be making any quips about France or English or anything like that, at least as hard as I can try. Um, but what I do want to talk about are some of the uh, developments about Macron, French foreign policy, uh, and quite a few different developments, obviously, considering the ongoing uh, situation with Ukraine and uh, what Macron said about China. Now, they caused quite a stir. The situation with Ukraine is very sensitive, and France has long been a country that is a little bit more independent in terms of how it conducts itself vis-a-vis its withdrawal from NATO, um, its shift in its relationship with the Americans versus, say, the British. They're a general deviation away from uh, certain things. And this use of the term strategical autonomy has really captured the minds of quite a few policymakers, journalists, academics, and alike. So in this video, I want to cover three main themes. One, what did Macron actually mean? And how should we interpret it? Two, is this a significant shift in foreign policy or a pressure from the domestic situation? And three, what does this mean, particularly for European unity, orientation for uh, Europe, say, to the transatlantic alliance. I do also want to make a particular note uh, of the loss of the French journalist for AFP that was killed in Ukraine. Um, so my um, uh, condolences to his family and friends, um, and I hope he rests in peace. But joining me today to talk about these um, very diverse set of issues um, and an episode I've been wanting to do for a while in France, or in France, is um, Tara Varma. She is a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institute. She's also been uh, part, uh, formerly part of the European Council on Foreign Relations. And she's generally, to quote her t- Twitter bio, because that's where we're co-streaming today, uh, very passionate about geopolitics. So um, welcome, Tara. Delighted to have you on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Piotr. It's great to be here. Uh, thanks for inviting me. And I do do forward to, to the quips about France as well. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, up, up your sleeve. There are many questions, as as you said, about what France, you know, wants to do, what Macron intended when he gave these comments, which were comments out of an interview that were that was published basically in two news outlets, one uh, in English and political, and another in French in the newspaper, the daily newspaper Les Echos. And the two are a bit different in the sense that I think uh, Les Echos has a a more exhaustive transcription of what he said and Politico chose a number of passages and also wrote about these passages in the interview. The The comments that I think stirred a lot of debate and uh, and in a way also anxiety about what France meant um, were the ones about Taiwan and the fact that Macron was worried about an escalation in the Indo-Pacific and he thought Europe, one of the great risks, I quote, that Europe faces is getting caught in crises that are not ours and that we needed to resist America's pressure 
mm. to become to, to we needed to resist pressure Europeans um, to become America's followers. And I think these comments uh, they stirred a lot of debate and and I think they caused a lot of anxiety, as I said, because it seemed that Macron was equating basically Chinese and American actions in the region that were both at the same level leading to escalation. And I think that is is not right. You know, that there is a huge American debate right now about China and indeed how China is increasingly becoming a challenge to the US. But it is Xi Jinping, uh, the president of China, who is actually giving, uh, who has been giving a number of speeches about how he wants Taiwan to, be, to come back into the, the fold of China. And so I think it was very dangerous, uh, both in terms of what this meant for France in, France's engagement in the Indo-Pacific, but of course, as you said yourself, what it meant for European allies counting on the U.S. security guarantee. And, and this is something that we tend to, I was, I was going to say disregard, maybe disregard is too strong a word, but it's, it, it is an element of European strategic thinking that in France we tend to underestimate because we are now the only nuclear-powered state uh, inside the European Union. We have um, the third diplomatic network in the world, a strong military that was present in a number of uh, operations outside of France, outside of Europe. And so you said France is, tends to be more independent. And I think there is a sense that France wants to pursue basically um, its foreign policy on two levels. Mm. The first one is defending its national interests. And there, I would say independence is absolutely right. I think this is really something that de Gaulle thought of when he wanted this fifth republic that we're living in to to come to 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 come to come to exist but there's a second part of french foreign policy which is the european dimension and which macron has really embodied since he was elected in 2017 i think i don't think there were anti-european presidents before him i think it was it seems so obvious to them that they were supposed to be pro-european because france was a founding member of the eu that they didn't mention the, europe so much and so in the French general debate, public debate, Europe is seen as, um, you know, something that's dealt with in Brussels and that has an importance in people's life, but it's seen as something that's very far away, not not something tangible. And I think what he wanted to do when he came in 2017 was actually to, to be clear about how pro-European he was and how he wanted to yeah, how he wanted Europe and the EU in particular to build more capacities in the field of defense, but not only. And so, of course, this particular point raises an, a number of eyebrows elsewhere in Europe, where for the vast majority of European Union member states, uh, the US is the main security guarantor. Well, what, OK, so what I want to do is, I think, back up a little bit and contextualize a little bit this this trip. Um, it was, a, what, a couple of weeks ago now, so the sort of fanfare around us settled but you know from what i understood ursa von der leyen accompanied him and she's the current head of the eu and the chinese weren't sort of as keen they'd put the red carpet out particularly for macron and macron made a very and this is something else i would like your your perspective on so one if you can contextualize the trip which led to these comments but also two macron is if you want to call him an egotist, but he has a certain habit of liking to be in the limelight a little bit, and he likes to make he likes to be he likes to make a bit of a spectacle, right? It makes me think of when he um, made those very public comments to Trump uh, during the um, uh, Remembrance Day um, in 2018, I believe, and he used that as a platform by which to ridicule the threat to democracy that he thought Trump meant. So, 
what do you how much do you think that this is about macron as much as it is about you know chinese french codependency and you know because he wants to be, he's been the face of europe since merkel stepped down and pro europe i mean we'll come to that later on but pro eu voice and also just also one of globalism right he's been seen as a, as as the quintessential sort of you know elite bringing in mckinsey to help improve the efficiency at great cost to the french taxpayer the french government uh, things like this have made him quite polarizing Personally, I don't disagree with his comments, and and I think the viewers should really pay attention to one singular fact, which is, tacitly speaking, most EU members agreed with him, apart from Poland, which was. And if viewers want the other side of that view, they should vis- visit the video that will be tagged above here somewhere. But what do you take? What's your thought on those two sort of sub questions, if they are questions? So first, contextualizing the trip to China, um, when Macron was elected in twenty seventeen. He vowed to go to China quite early on in his mandate. And so he did beginning 2018. Um, and he vowed from the very beginning that even if this was a bilateral uh, trip and a state visit to China, there was always going to be a European dimension to his engagement in China. And so the first trip that he did, he brought about uh, a German education minister with him and he wanted to show that there was you know, a, a European dimension to it, but also a Franco-German very strong relationship Mm. there because France and Germany do have different dependencies and different relationships when it comes to China. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he said at the time in 2018 that he was going to go to China every year in his mandate. And so he went in 2018. In 2019, March 2019, he hosted Xi Jinping uh, in Paris and at the time invited Chancellor Merkel and... um, Oh, yes, I remember that European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker. And so they, they it, again, it was a bilateral visit by France, but he was hosted uh, by a number of European officials as well. And the, the point then was to show that there was a European unity. He did the same when he went back to China at the end of 2019. And so, again, there was a European, very European dimension to his trip. Uh, of course, then 20, since 2020 um, and the COVID pandemic, he was not able to go. So when he went this year, it was the first time in three and a half years that he was going to China at a time where the world really had changed and the EU had changed as well. Uh, There was really a realization from the EU side at the time of the COVID pandemic of how dependent the European Union was uh, on China on a number of its value chains and on, you know, sectors that were not considered to be strategic, typically the health sector and a number, basically all of uh, the biggest pharmaceuticals had their manufacturer manufacturing plants in China. And if China decided from one day to another to shut the access to this plant or not to let them send uh, their products back to Europe, then it would put Europe in an untenable position with the incapacity to reindustrialize, particularly when it comes to these huge manufacturing plants to Europe from one day to another. So there was a big realization then. Uh, I would say a much more assertive China as well. Xi Jinping, who hadn't gone out of China for a very long time, and the few times that he did, he basically went to Russia or to Turkey, but he didn't go so much to, to Europe and clearly not to the United States. So it was still very important to Macron when he made this visit, um, which was not the first visit by a European leader, I should say. Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, went to China uh, last October, again, in a very much decry trip as well, because he went to China 10 days after the 20th Party Congress, which basically decided that Xi Jinping could stay president for life. Well, it legitimized it, basically, didn't he? And 
that that's the impression that it gave. And at the time, Macron wanted them to go together. It gave the impression that even if they did go 10 days after the trip, if they went together, there would be some form of European unity. Right. And uh, Schultz turned him down. And so Macron went on his trip in April. He still, he didn't want to give it up, but he went with Ursula von der Leyen. That was decided a bit later on. I think it gave the, you know, the trip quite a big standing. He did it in, in the context of trying to renew EU-China relations uh, in a much more realistic and pragmatic manner. Um, but he also did it in the context of the war in Ukraine at a time where Vladimir Putin is increasingly isolated on the international stage, but still has, uh, I would say, quite a lot of support, you know, even if it remains symbolic. It's not just symbolic, but even symbolic support from the president of China makes a big difference for Putin right now. And so the idea for Macron was that there should be a national bilateral trade dimension to this trip to China. There should be a European dimension with uh, Dr. von der Leyen coming along, but also a geopolitical dimension in trying to convince Xi Jinping to move the needle with Putin and to try to get him to put an end to the war. And, and so it was very much um, the narrative that the Chinese media, both print and social media, put out saying that, you know, he was hosted as a president. It was a formal state bilateral visit. Uh, he was hosted by Xi Jinping and Chiang, the, the prime minister. Uh, he was hosted at the airport by them, whereas she just had to go on a commercial plane and was hosted by a lower level minister. And, uh, and she was just a puppet of the Americans. But actually, the fact of the matter is she also met Xi Jinping and Chiang. Uh, they met together with Macron, but she also met with them for several hours in uh, just in a bilateral meeting to but, carry out her own message. But why the lack of coverage or why the lack of publicity around her chat? Uh, she was not as controversial, I guess, as Macron. But she, oh, shocking. I, <laughs> I think she was, what she did was really interesting and I would say very strategic. So a few days before going on this trip, she gave a speech at uh, the Mercator Foundation in Berlin, mm. uh, their institute on China called Merics, where she laid out for the first time since 2019, the EU's vision, renewed vision of what a relationship with China should be. And that was quite fascinating because the last uh, communication that we had from the European Union on the EU-China relationship was March 2019, where it came out with this triptych uh, saying that China was, you know, a systemic rival, but she, will always be a competitor, but it should also be a partner on a number of global issues. And so this was, you know, kind of an irreconcilable triangle, because if you deem a country to be a systemic rival, which means that your systems of governance are ultimately incompatible, it's hard to see on which issues you can partner. And the fact of the matter is it was very hard to partner with China on global issues in the past few years. Her approach in the speech that she gave, and I really encourage all our listeners to go and check it out, it's, it's, um, it's, it's uploadable on Merix's website, is the one where she talks about de-risking. She says we shouldn't decouple our relationship with China. So, you know, decoupling is a word that's come out a lot in the US-China, in the EU-China debate generally. So decoupling would be basically removing all the interdependencies that ha we have in our trade relationship. This is in fact, not possible today. I'm not sure it would be, you know, recommendable. But what she talks about is de-risking, and a number of U.S. officials have used also this term since then, which means that we, we don't put an end to trade to China. But first of all, we diversify with a number of other partners that we choose strategically. And then we diversify away from China on some of these fields that we deem to be strategic. And so this is something, so she used it, uh, Wendy Sherman used it as well in the U.S., 
Jake Sullivan, uh, President Biden's National Security Advisor, used it. Janet Yellen uh, used it as well. So it's a term that's becoming more and more present in the debate on what our relationship as Europe and America should be towards China. And so she changed that quite a bit. And so you're right, her visit was not covered as much uh, as Macron's visit. But actually what she did is this kind of this twofold strategy where she gave mm-hmm. a speech a few days before going to Beijing, then went to Beijing and had all her bilateral meetings. You know, not a, not an as wide coverage, but I think a sense that there is a new European leader is actually, uh, uh, I, I think it was quite a success for Trick in the end. On your second question on Macron and how he presents himself. Well, okay, we'll be here for it. Shall I, shall I extend the, the, the length of the space? No, I'll try to. We're going to we're gonna extend the length of the space, everyone, to sort of tomorrow morning, because at this rate, we'll be here for a while talking about it. No, I'm joking. No, no, I, I think it's fascinating. Very quick. Oh, sorry. No, 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 it's not your length. It's not you talking. It's just Macron. He's quite a, well, uh, well, uh, tell us why. Or what do you think? He, so he is someone who uh, values rhetorics a lot. Mm. And who really thinks that you can make a difference by making a speech, by giving a speech. And so you need the speech needs to be thought out. And he wants to show himself as someone being very nuanced and and um, bringing something substantive and substantial to the discussion. Mm-hmm. And so that's not always easy because that means that he gives usually very long speeches where he wants to get into the nuance of everything. But what gets picked up out of these speeches or interviews is usually the soundbite that then you know travels all over the world. You need to also recall that he came in uh, a few months after Trump was elected and had this very boisterous way of doing politics. And so I think he wanted to show a different, more balanced way of doing politics. He, his idea when he came to power was to also to overcome the left-right divide. So he was really thinking about how how do I make a point? How do I bring left and right voters back together on general issues? And how can I make a point which is a bit more subtle than just the soundbite that you usually hear? Well, just to just to jump in on that point there, because wasn't it um, who was the very socialist candidate in the election last year? Jérôme? Anne Hidalgo. Yes. Mélenchon. Mélenchon. So Mélenchon, basically, when he realized that it was going to go to Le Pen and Macron, he basically went to all of his supporters and like, guys, vote for Macron because she, he's still the lesser of the two evils. So, but that's not really bringing the sides together, or is it because the state of French politics, particularly in the side of the left, is so as it is that, well, he's the only option? Well, sorry that's to interject, but like that's sort of why I'm... No, no, exactly. He's built it that way. He's basically built, because he's overcome, in a way, the left-right divide, he's built this massive center in French politics, which is unprecedented. And so the extremes on the far right and the far left are extremely strong. And he's totally dismantled, let's say, traditional type of political parties who would actually have had a say in this political debate. And I do think, but that's my personal view, that actually the left and the right are quite different when it comes to economic programs, social mm. programs, justice programs. As much as he's tried to to put some nuance into the debate, it's maybe too much nuance. And so people really don't see where what his positioning is, what Macronism is after six years of Macron being in power. There's a big question right now of what will happen in the next four years. He manages to alienate a lot of people. He's managed to alienate a whole part of French society who do, who sees him as the president of the rich. And this has been true since the very beginning. And I, I hope that he's realizing that you can't solve all of this just by giving speeches. It's also really about actions and how you conduct yourself. But it's okay. taking a lot of time. He's used to people, um, you know, liking him. He's, he's very charismatic, etc. But I think what he wants, what he's attempting to do here hasn't worked until now. But he, you, 
he's using what is not working to his advantage. So in, in the end, the fact of the matter is whether it was on the NATO brain death comment in 2019 or whether it's on the China comments right now, he's the one driving the debate. And I think for what I call the Macron method, this is, this is a victory in itself because then the whole discussion is about his comments. Even if it's mostly negative, the fact of the matter is he's the reference point. I guess people and talking. We get, it gets people talking. It gets people positioning themselves for or against, sometimes mostly against. But the fact <laughs> of the matter is he's still the reference point. And I think for him, that's because he, he cares so much about rhetoric, that's a victory. But you know, this former journalist, Remontaz in Politico, she had called him the think tanker in chief a few years ago because he likes to contribute to the debate. But what we've been saying for a very long time is that he's not just another contributor. When he speaks, he's the president of France. So it has a political and a policy dimension to it, which I find that he un underestimates because, of course, people, you know, he, again, he's the French president. When he says something on China, on Taiwan, on the U.S., on strategic autonomy, people take him seriously. And so they do wonder what he meant. And, and the fact that there are so many nuances, I think, makes him less and less readable or less and less easy to understand. And I think that is problematic because of France's standing in Europe and, and on the global stage, but also because we do need to be clear with a number of our partners in America and in Asia on what we want to do as Europeans and how we position ourselves. And, and the fact of the matter is he is not clear. So as we begin to veer, I think, towards this broader foreign policy and the Euro-centric uh, uh, focus of the conversation, I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I think he gets a lot of stick. And I do think that he is representative of, you know, neoliberalism and, and, and some failed ideologies or principles uh, from the past, well, 25, 30 years since, you know, Thatcherism, Reaganism, with his own obvious interpretation that are not working. But I don't think what he did in this instance was bad or like I think he got an unnecessary amount of negative repercussions or stick but and it was sort of and and this is one of the things i want your comment on is france has had a bit of a mistreatment by allies and partners in the past couple of years the AUKUS deal is what i'm thinking of specifically to lose a 35 billion dollar sub deal to the british particularly and the australians uh, is not not okay and considering that france is america's oldest ally maybe not their closest, it depends. And that's pretty significant. So how do you feel about, you know, is, is that Macron trying to hold, uh, if we focus on the transatlantic relationship for a minute, France and, 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 and their place in, uh, you know, America's role, if, if something happens in Taiwan, for example, uh, you know, what, what do you take about that? And how do you see the, the sort of the, the, the post-Macron uh, this is not really worth getting too much into because it's a few years off. But in my current mind, you know, we've got the pen who will probably run again. Mélenchon seems to be interested. I mean, can Macron run again? I don't think he can. So who comes after him? And and, and because I'm a centrist, I don't particularly want a far right, far left candidate. What, yeah. What, what do you feel about those two uh, topics? So, um, many questions there, <laughs> foreign policy. And many, many apologies for that. <laughs> no, 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 that's good. I was writing them down just to make sure that I don't uh, lose sight and, or forget any of them. Let's start with AUKUS and the transatlantic relationship. And I actually re 
wind a little further and go back to his speech at the Sorbonne on European sovereignty. Mm. And the fact that he's been speaking also quite a lot about European strategic autonomy, which a number of partners have interpreted as going against the U.S. or without the U.S. I have to say, I don't think when he was giving these speeches early on in his mandate, in his first mandate, I don't think it was against the U.S. It was just at a time where the U.S. was uh, headed by Donald Trump, who was quite clear. He said, you know, he, who was who said, tweeted and said it a few times that he thought the European Union was a foe to the U.S., uh, that NATO was a very bad deal, that uh, the U.S. were basically um, providing security for the Europeans without getting anything in return. So this was also the context. Britain, uh, Great Britain has, had just left the EU. And so what he was saying is maybe we won't be able always to count on uh, the U.S. ally. And so we do need to build a number of capacities for ourselves in case, God forbid, anything happened to Europe and we would not then be in a capacity to defend ourselves. But it was it was a bit about the U.S., but it was not, I would say, mostly about the U.S. It was about really building Europe's capacity to act. And what we see now in the framework of the war in Ukraine is that a lot of fear that were exists, you know, in the NATO versus European uh, defense debate, the idea for a long time was to say, well, we don't need European defense to have its proper European capacities because NATO has everything, and then it would lead to redundancy. What we're seeing in, in, in all the support that we're providing to Ukraine right now is that it is good that a number of European countries have weapons to provide to Ukraine because it is helping that we're deciding this both at the EU level and at the national member states level, and the redundancy is not a problem. Here. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a separate issue, but I wanted to, to highlight it because I wanted to, to show that I think the redundancy debate uh, about why we sh- there would be no need for European defense capacities because we have NATO, I think now that's really outdated. It's obsolete. It's not, it's not adequate in the current context that we're living. But for sure, when AUKUS happened, I think he was really taken aback, really shocked. Even though he had had suspicions about the US in the past, I think the fact that this happened uh, under a democratic administration, there were, you know, no prior notice, no preparation whatsoever to this news. And it was not just about actually losing a 35 billion euro contract, because in, in the contract that the French had signed with the Australians, there was, you know, 8 billion euros going to Lockheed Martin for a number of military equipment. In the end, mm. for France, it was a few billions, but it was a contract that that was all encompassed and that speared way way beyond French interest. I think it was it was something that was, I think, really, really shocking uh, for Macron. And he did, I would say the trauma for him is still very present. And so the comments that he gave in this interview, they do have, they do come from somewhere. And uh, I think he's recovered from August. He went to the US, you know, there was a state visit, again, another state visit um, a few months ago. And, and he's he's been quite clear with the US administration, by the way, that he wants them to show very open support to European strategic autonomy, because we do know that the U.S. still plays such a massive role in deciding what what is good or bad for European security and in driving the European security debate, that it is important that if the U.S. president gives a signal that he does want Europe to to build its own capacities, to have a European defense industrial base, to be able to fund it, I think that sends a strong message to our partners elsewhere in Europe. And so I think he still, you know, he... He will want to work with the U.S., uh, but he also sees that we're all following very, very closely what's happening in, in the U.S. electoral uh, calendar. Last year, the midterms elections, you know, they were covered so widely in Europe. It was it was very interesting. I was really thinking, well, the reverse wouldn't happen. We were all thinking what, what happens uh, in California or in Wyoming actually has consequences for European security if voters decided 
to give a full House and Senate majority to the Republicans. There were discussions about cutting off the aid packages to Ukraine. This was a very open debate in the U.S. And so there was a clear sense that local elections in America have massive consequences, strategic consequences for European security. The reverse, of course, not being true. I don't think people in Wyoming or in California think that elections in France or in Italy have a bearing on their own security. So we are there is also this dependency gap in a way that we need to think about. And he's very conscious of that. He's very conscious that 2024 brings about the US presidential elections, where even if Joe Biden is reelected, he's giving a clear sense that it's going to be America first, not in a Donald Trump kind of way, but it's going to be about America first, about, you know, solving domestic policy issues, and about taking on the China, about uh, taking on the China challenge. And so he is thinking about all of this without, I don't think, I think he's not consulting enough with his European partners, because as I said, France has a very different positioning than all the other 26 member states here. It has the capacity to act on its own, not for a very long time, not on a huge uh, military theater of operation, but it does have them, which is not the case for the vast majority of the others who do count on the US. And mm -hmm. I think this, this bias in his view as a French person has a bearing on how he thinks of European security. I think on principle, I, I think he's right to think about these things and to think about projecting power at a European level to, to be able to get people to working with him. Because I do think ultimately, you know, for many reasons, the US is going to be focused on the Indo-Pacific theater. There's a generational change, both in young democratic and Republican foreign policy thinkers with less, less and less attachment to the transatlantic relationship. They are, you know, very focused on uh, Central and South America, working with the African continent, working with Asia as well, because this is where the growth is going to come about. This is where a lot of the diaspora in the U.S. comes from. So the shift, I'm not saying that Democratic and Republican foreign policy thinkers think the same way, but this general generational change is certainly going to affect Europe. Yeah, there's an overarching shift. Yeah, exactly. And it's good to anticipate and to think about it and to find solutions. Again, not to move away from the US, but to be able to do without the US if the situation comes to that. And I think this is where he's not being clear enough. And by wanting to be so nuanced, I think he's missing the point of wanting to reassure partners that he's not saying we're shutting the door on the US. We're just thinking about what we would need to do if they decided not to be there and we were left on our own. So Tara, the last question I have for you then is, you know, we've touched upon it, but I, I want to drill down in the last few minutes about this strategical autonomy. Now, I think it was 2020 or 2019, the European Union released a strategical compass concept, this um, white paper, I think, basically outlining what they meant or what they intended. Macron has always touted the idea of a European army um, and, you know, this it, it sort of falls under that banner of European defense and security. But um, and I, I'll premise my question by saying um, what uh, Joseph Burrell, the high representative, said in September, October, which was at an ambassador dinner, which was that, you know, we need to be uh, rid of or we need to address, uh, you know, over-reliance on um, U.S. security assurances, big markets from China and cheap gas and energy from Russia. Now, some ding-dongs, as I'm going to call them for this episode, on Twitter and other social media were like, oh, okay, France has just turned to China. Not sure it's that strong, but there is, I think, a intelligent point to his 
comments, which is we need to be a little bit more uh, autonomous. And, you know, autonomous is an ambiguous word with lots of meanings, militarily, um, cyber, energy, economics, culturally, you know, who's the other person that said, you know, Europe's a museum, right? Um, And we do have a huge impact with the war in Ukraine, which still shows no sign of stopping. So love you to unpack it a little bit more, um, where you think it could go. How much do you see Macron or France more broadly being the figurehead of that? Um, And also, how do you see them counterbalancing against powers like Germany, the, the, the growing confidence of Poland, but also the UK? You know, France does do something, you know, the two are compared a lot. And uh, the one thing I will give Macron is he certainly does a lot more shuttle diplomacy than, well, well, we've been fighting amongst ourselves for too bloody long. Uh, and frankly, I do like Macron just because he looks like a statesman next to Bryce bloody Johnson. But anyway, <laughs> love to hear your thoughts on, on those two sort of sub themes. So I'm very happy that you're asking that because the European strategic uh, autonomy issue is such a sensitive topic i would say you know if the us and in europe that is good to to desensitize it by by defining it so actually european strategic autonomy has been mentioned as a, a goal to attain by the eu in documents that have dated back now to 2013 so this has been something that's been ongoing for the past 10 years it's present in official documents of the european council the european parliament and and you know in national documents as well so it's still perceived very much as a French idea because the European definition basically comes, I would say, from the French definition that was in the Defense White Book of 1994, which is strategic autonomy is the capacity to act independently in an interdependent world. You know, remains quite vague. Don't really know what that means. You do understand that you need capacities for it, but what does it mean? It acknowledges that you're in an interdependent world, but that's there's a, there's a lot of dependencies. It's 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 codependent, overdependent, under interdependent, independent, <laughs> independent. But I think that so that's the general idea. When you trickle down a little bit into what it means, basically, strategic autonomy has three components: uh, autonomy of information, autonomy of decision, autonomy of action. When it comes to autonomy of information, that basically means intelligence gathering. The EU has, mm. doesn't have an intelligence network. So it doesn't have this autonomy of information. It relies on a lot of the member states who are inside NATO. It relies on the US. Autonomy of decision, I would say on, on, on the fields that are of its competency, so particularly trade, industrial policy, but now also climate, uh, the EU has an autonomy of decision, but it doesn't have an autonomy of decision when it comes to security and defense. Autonomy of action, again, it has... Autonomy of action in the fields that are pertinent to its competencies, but there are a vast number of fields on which it doesn't have autonomy of action, and clearly mm-hmm. security defense is one. And even in trade, I would say an economic policy, the fact that it's been implementing investment screening mechanism, anti-coercion instruments, you know, sanctions in particular, these are tools that are now in the EU toolbox, but have basically come come to come about in very recent times because the EU has accepted that. It doesn't live in in a world where, you know, because uh, what is at the heart of the EU project is peace and it's going to project only peace. It's been reluctant to to weaponize a number of the instruments it has at its disposal to defend its own interests, because this was precisely what the EU was not supposed to be about. It was not supposed to be about great power competition. It was supposed to be about building a different political world that relied on trade partnerships. And the, the idea was... Interde- the interdependencies created by this trade 
would lead countries to think that they should not go to war with one another. I would say for the most part, this has worked inside uh, the EU boundaries and EU frontiers, but beyond the EU and sometimes very close to the EU, actually, wars were going on. So the war in Ukraine also came as a really a wake-up call, I would say, for the EU. But as I said, autonomy of information, autonomy of decision, autonomy of action, we don't have autonomy as the EU today. There is a question of whether European strategic autonomy is not European Union strategic autonomy, and of course, the role that the UK would play, as you mentioned yourself, I think. Very early on, when the UK decided to, to withdraw from the EU, there were questions from the EU side about how we could maintain a strong foreign and security policy uh, agreement and partnership with the UK. And actually, for internal reasons, for, for a long time, the UK didn't want to dissociate its relationship with the EU from its foreign and security relationship mm -hmm. with the EU. And so now, I think now things are changing. It's, you know, in the past, really, literally weeks, things have gotten better between the EU and the UK and and between France and the UK, I think France, France relies, France wants to rely a lot more on the UK. And you see it in the spats that France and Germany are going through. Actually, when it comes to strategic outlooks and strategic visions, I would say France and the UK share it a lot more than France and Germany do. And there is still the sense, even if, of course, for the UK, the US is the indispensable ally, there's a stressor relationship. There is still this willingness, both on the UK and France's side, to be actors who can act partly independently, something that uh, Germany in particular doesn't share at all. And one of the big issues in the Franco-German relationship is, I think, the lack of understanding that France has in Germany's willingness to remain dependent on the US for its security. So that's, I think, a very strong issue. The UK could come back in. I think there are many. Typically, there's been a lot of UK leadership in, in providing uh, support to Ukraine in the framework of the war. There could be a lot more to be done uh, when it comes to European strategic autonomy. I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that, interestingly enough, in the American debate, that a lot of Americans are would be in favor of European strategic autonomy, not because they want to move away completely from Europe, but because there is a sense that basically the EU is one of the largest markets in the world. And so Europeans do have the money to defend themselves, they can afford it. And and there is less and less justification of why the US should do that. And so this is also changing. It's scaring a lot of people in Europe, uh, and understandably so, because you can't build these capacities from one day to another. If you're building a defense industrial base, it's going to take a very long time. If you're building an intelligence network, it's going to take a very long time. So, But the fact that the US would want to accompany this process, I think would be a very interesting change. I know Michael, my co-host, has a question um, about the EPC. Uh, so I'm not going to touch that. But I do want to just ask you, and I just want your quick take. Are we not in a potential? I'll frame it this way. So we have a growing, you know, balance of power shift. As I said, I encourage other people to check out a couple of other videos, including one I posted recently about Turkey's election, right? Turkey's not in the EU, but it's still a major pole in the center of gravities of the EU. Um, we've got the Polish election coming up, which we'll be doing coverage later in the year. But, you know, Poland is growing assertive. Uh, we've got a waning in the French-German access just because Schultz has been ridiculed for slow progress to help uh, support Ukraine's defence. Um, the British have signed this trilateral agreement a year ago with Poland and Ukraine. Um, the Italians seem to be a little bit more on top of it now with Maloney, supposedly. Could we not see a... You know, who leads the EU, right? So we've got this strategic autonomy, but who leads it? Who oversees it? And and how, and, and who, not saying that everyone adheres to Macron or France now, but 
the French German axis has obviously been for the better part of 70 years the core crux of the EU. Do we do we see a bit of a division along the lines of sort of, you know, the Nordic states in one way, the Eastern European, you know, the three season initiative in the, in, the, in the Eastern European area, the Benelux countries, you know, how, how do you see that? And, and I just, yeah, for your quick take on that. I think that is good, actually. You're right. The Franco-German uh, tandem is, was uh, the engine <laughs> of the EU. But because precisely generally France and Germany start, I would say, at opposite of the spectrum on a given issue. And so they need to work through their difficulties. And there is a particular set of how, the, how this works politically and on the administration level that is unprecedented. It's unseen elsewhere. There are always difficulties in the Franco-German relationship, but it's usually when they overcome them that things advance for the EU. Right. When the Franco-German relationship was set up, there were only six members inside the European Union. There are 27 today. So, of course, the, the, the nature of how this works is different. It's still absolutely existential and crucial, I would say. We saw it during the COVID pandemic, the fact that we managed to do debt neutralization together, which was a massive economic taboo, happened because actually Merkel and Macron ultimately came together. And the fact that this happened kind of pushed the others uh, to the edge and they managed to accept it. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing now is, I don't know if it's a shift of the center of gravity to the east. This is what Olaf Scholz said. This is what a number of Central and Eastern European partners are saying. I think what is certain is that they are, are a lot more present in the debate. They're a lot more present mm. in shaping foreign policy. I don't see now, um, you know, a tandem in Central and Eastern Europe that has the same impact on the whole of Europe as the Franco-German tandem does. But I think it would be good. I think it is absolutely necessary to show that there are debates going on in Europe. If the European Union is supposed is about to be a project that lasts for a long time, it will have to be a lot more inclusive. And it, these countries have act, they have more strategic agency than, than they give themselves credit for. They are important. And if they want to contribute to the debate, they need to do so not just looking at their own national interests, but how this could play for the EU. And we see a shift in that. The fact that it was Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kalas a few weeks ago who said that she thought there should be a joint ammunition uh, procurement proposal coming out of the European Union is something, honestly, that I don't think I would have seen. She was the one basically making the case to put forward to advance European defense mm -hmm. capacities. I think you're seeing a shift there, which I think is quite helpful. I think it is taking... France and Germany are back a little bit because it does change their role in all of this. Uh, but I think it is good for the EU that actually it's more inclusive and more participatory. Well, there you have it, everybody. Um, that's quite a uh, that's quite an interesting take and a, and a very enjoyable one at that. I'm delighted, Tara, that you didn't protest any of my questions um, and that my apartment hasn't, um, well smalt of onions after the um i'm sorry that was the best i could think of on the fly <laughs> but no everyone it's been an absolute pleasure hosting tara um if you have any questions if you have any pushbacks don't forget to drop a comment um send me an email you can find all that information uh on my youtube homepage. um and i want to thank you all for tuning in for this episode uh we will be having more coverage as i say a part two of the turkish elections uh, and we will be also uh, bringing on um some notable voices in uh uh, political leaders there's always something happening on the global gambit um but i wish you all uh, a very good uh rest of your day week uh and take care you were listening to the global gambit we hope you enjoyed this episode if you did subscribe and leave us a review 
We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. Lastly, don't be shy. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at the global gambit. But until next time, this is the global gambit.